This week's episode is brought to you by the ghosts in my blood and listeners just like you. Thank you to our collaborator, Tim Hacker of CryptoChronicles.com, who's already helping us prepare another bizarre episode about aliens and the secret space program. If you'd like to help support the show, see our voluminous show notes, get a tarot reading from me, or even pay us to do an episode topic of your choosing, please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit, where your monthly donation of just five bucks will not only get you the extended edition of this episode, but every single one of our episodes dating back to the golden age before the timeline split like a bush of spaghetti in a barbershop. But not only that, I'll send you a waterproof, high-quality, gourmet, custom-fitted, RFID-blocking, radar-dispersing, time-dislocating, quantum-detangling, vinyl 5x5 sticker of our Big Bunny cover art, and the secret keys to our Discord server where listeners, collaborators, and creators of the show hatch their plans to create energy drinks for dogs and small horses. In this week's episode, we follow up on our previous discussion about the secret CIA remote viewing program by doing an in-depth examination of one of the most interesting declassified documents associated with dubbed the Analysis and Assessment of Gateway Process, where Commander Wayne McDonald explains to his superiors involved in the remote viewing program at Fort Meade how the training he received at the Monroe Institute taught him to astral project using a pair of moderately priced headphones and some pre-recorded binaural audio beat tapes. We review the litany of theories presented inside this document and explain precisely what it all means, what supposedly is going on in the brain when it happens, how it works, and what it has to do with astral projection, hypnotism, out-of-body, and near-death experiences. In the extended show, we switch it up to discuss how these ideas relate to the wisdom of ancient Egypt and let Hekka Astra explain in depth the comedic anatomy of the soul, how they are thought to perform spirit travel, and relate it to the technical data we explored in the first half. Make sure to grab your nerd glasses, thank you, and enjoy the show. dude who talks about morphic fields or morphic resonance Rupert Sheldrake one of Hekka's friends while I was visiting in Canada said that there was no such thing as morphic fields dogs could just tell by the level of smell which slowly decreased over the course of the day when the smell corresponded to when you're supposed to come home and that's how they figure it out I don't know who you're talking about because I don't have any friends hello everybody and welcome to the whole rabbit where we do more than just tell you about the top secret government funded programs the CIA uses to weaponize the little known psychic ability of remote viewing for covert intelligence gathering operations. Nay, we pop open the hood of our spectral chariot and get a better understanding of how the astral body is wired because this week we're discussing the anatomy of the soul and the esoteric mechanics of spirit travel. I'm your host, Hack Rabbit, also known as Luke Madrid. I'm joined this week by co-host the astral surfing Marisama, Tubular Dudes, the magnificent mind seer Malachor 5, 
Ponder thy orbs. And the rainbow body dream lady, Hecka Astra. Hello. As we learned in our last episode, following the defeat of Nazi Germany, the United States and Soviet Russia stumbled upon a treasure trove of secret materials regarding the Third Reich's various pursuits to weaponize the occult faculties of the human soul, which both nations used as jumping off points to kickstart their own research into psychic warfare. In the United States, this culminated with a highly successful collection of classified programs, first developed by the Stanford Research Institute, which utilized the latent psychic ability of humans to project their raw consciousness across vast distances of time and space at will to remotely view people, places, and even planets invisibly from the cozy comfort of home base. But how does it work? Is remote viewing the same as astral travel? If not, how are they related? What does it have to do with lucid dreaming, near-death experiences, and out-of-body experiences? To answer these questions, we look to both scientific concepts of quantum mechanics, secret CIA, declassified documents, and in the extended show, the ancient religious wisdom of Egypt. So to stick with a bit of a theme across this episode and the previous one, this is a uh, part two, I guess, I'd like to begin by taking a look at a declassified CIA document, specifically a 29-page document called Analysis and Assessment of the Gateway Process. And you can find this at the CIA website, CIA.gov. And it's dated the 9th of June in 1983. And it was released to the public on September 10th, 2003. Though it was missing page 25 when it first came out. And the CIA's response was like, we just didn't get that paper. We've all heard that before, right? Does it have it now? You can find it on some other websites now. I don't think it's ever been officially released with that 25th page, but I think it's online now. That's where they talk about the butt stuff? Some of the experience stuff, if I remember correctly. Some of the... Uh, techniques that you can do with this. The stuff they don't want you to do. And it's written by Lieutenant Colonel Wayne M. McDonnell. He describes how he was tasked, quote, to provide an assessment of the gateway experience in terms of its mechanics and ultimate practicality. But what is the gateway experience, you may ask? The gateway experience was a program run by the Monroe Institute, which began as the research and development wing of RAM Enterprises, which specialized in creating entertainment network radio spots that took the form of popular quiz shows. Its founder... Robert Allen Monroe created the research and development wing to begin studying the effects that audio could have creating altered states on its listener and focused its first efforts on sleep learning, which is essentially what it sounds like, playing lectures to sleeping people with the hope of them somehow retaining it and being able to present the information in a wakeful state. While modern science claims sleep learning is impossible, Robert claimed that over his six weeks experimenting with sleep learning, it resulted in nine different cases where he found himself in a state similar to sleep paralysis, but a white light descended upon him from a shallow angle as his body experienced vibratory sensations, culminating in his first out-of-body experience. These experiences were the basis of what would become the Monroe Institute's residential program like the Gateway Experience, which was based out of its campus in Virginia and saw tens of thousands of visitors, including Wayne McDonnell, who was asked to prepare a report for his U.S. Army intelligence superiors at Fort Meade, one of the primary home bases of the classified remote viewing programs at the time. So the Monroe Institute is a privately owned institute that was doing these experiments for OBEs or out-of-body experience. Yes, and the military at the time had already had success 
with its remote viewing program, so they kind of reached out to the private sector, which they're good at doing, to figure out a bit more about the phenomena and see if they could get it to work even better. So in this document, McDonald explains how he went to great lengths in efforts to describe the practicality of the gateway experience and how it works, if it even does. By the end of this, he's explaining how it does work. McDonald says it was, a quote, an extremely involved and difficult business. He was talking to a physician at first who was taking the gateway experience with him. Then he felt it was necessary to get familiar with the physics that Isaac Bentov was bringing up at the time. And next, he learned about quantum physics to help describe the functions and nature of human consciousness and further had to recourse through theoretical physics to explain the time-space dimension and how the human consciousness can transcend that dimension, which was what the gateway experience's objective. And he went through all that so that he could not create a report to the Department of Defense that sounded like he was a mad occultist raving about out-of-body experiences and astral planes and all this crazy theory. At some point later in the document, McDonald states that these altered states are further honed the more the practitioner goes through the courses. And these courses were done at the time with binaural sound tapes. But what is binaural sound, you may ask? It's possible you may already be familiar, as the Monroe Institute made binaural sound quite popular, and is the operative idea behind how binaural beats are supposed to work. In the document, binaural beats are said to work through a phenomena referred to as FFR, or frequency following response. But really, the idea is pretty simple. Brains tend to operate at different wavelengths and frequencies, which are known as neural oscillation, more colloquially known as brain waves. Research has shown that activity in our nervous system, which includes the brain of course, operates with clusters of activity to certain rhythms, or beats, that speed up or slow down throughout the day, with faster rhythms corresponding to states of mental alertness and slower ones with daydreaming or sleep. As far as I can tell, this phenomena still mystifies science to some extent, but we know it has something to do with storing memory and transferring signals across different departments of the brain and nervous system. We also know that different stages of sleep are defined by changes in frequency of these brain waves. The way binaural beats are said to work is by playing two different frequencies over headphones, one in each ear. According to this theory, our brain finds the difference between these two frequencies and begins oscillating at that rate. As such, by changing the different frequencies played in each ear, the subject can enter into various states of wakefulness, sleep, meditation, and focus on demand. According to McDonnell and the Monroe Institute, it is possible to entrain the brain into specific frequencies which facilitate communication with a field of information outside the body. In some cases, the information field around the earth, and then secondly, impressions and information from the great beyond. This is said to be accomplished by what the Monroe Institute dubbed hemisync. In the document, McDonald further says that, one, Dr. Twemlow reported that after the spookily named Institute's Basic Focus 3 tapes, the brainwaves measured during hemisync moments would gradually get larger, indicating more brain energy or power. So there'd be focus tape number four, five, six, and they keep going, right? And each one, they keep increasing the power of your brain, apparently. Some of the other doctors involved told McDonald about how Zen meditation practitioners with around 20 years of training were able to achieve this hemisync state at will without needing any implementations of tools or you know binaural sounds they can just do this tibetan monks don't need special binaural beat tapes 
to tap into the great beyond. They use mantras and such, things like that. They have other tools. Do you know of people who can hear their own heartbeat, like in their ears, they can hear it? I can. I wonder if that also helps to reach that state. In my experience, these states are very vibratory in nature at different scales and different degrees. And this document itself kind of reads like a podcast script. It's full of so much information that it would take a few college terms of study to fully explain it line by line, maybe three or four podcast episodes by The Whole Rabbit. In the introduction, McDonald says some stuff that normal people would just immediately stop reading because they don't know what's even being talked about. And it's all very important, not only to the gateway experience, but it shares some concepts that some others might be able to interpret from an esoteric or occult perspective or whatever culture has a mythology about what happens in these similar experiences. You know, it's how we might see what the magi of the past may have been trying to explain with their old world experiences in these astral or these dream worlds. Because essentially, this is the scientifical explanation of how astral projection and spirit travel work. And it's been prepared by a military officer to explain it to his superiors. So it's like a really sanitized, modern take on that whole constellation of ideas. Now, in his assessment, McDonald establishes how the gateway experience differs from traditional, well-known avenues of altering consciousness. He puts his nerd glasses on and breaks them down into how they work on a technical, biological basis, which is pretty entertaining to read. He begins by explaining it's not hypnosis, saying, Hypnosis is basically a technique which permits acquisition of direct access to the sensory motor cortex and pleasure centers, and lower cerebral slash emotional portions and associated pleasure centers of the right side of the human brain following successful disengagement of the stimulus screening function of the left hemisphere of the brain. And he goes on to give a detailed explanation of how that works precisely where you want to bypass the mental conscious filter of the information you receive and pass it directly to your subconscious, which then acts out or syncs up with the information that you give it. He explains that's how hypnosis works. Yeah, it makes you subjective to like somebody planting a seed in your state, perhaps. You know, there's tales of the CIA doing other experiments. It's a common like myth, I guess, about hypnosis is that you can make people do something. You can implant your will into their will. I thought one of the interesting things he mentioned was is that you don't always have to put the conscious part of the mind to sleep. You can just distract it. So like television would work really well at hypnotizing people, for instance. It gives the conscious mind something to focus on and distract it so that ideas or information can transpire with the subconscious. The classic example of the someone swinging a pocket watch or a pendulum to hypnotize someone. It, and that's a repetitive movement and it distracts your conscious mind. You're getting sleepy. Yeah. Then he moves on to explain how transcendental meditation works. So this would be like what David Lynch and Jerry Seinfeld do on the reg. In this technique, intense and protracted single-minded concentration on the process of drawing energy up the spinal cord ultimately results in what appears to be creation of a acoustical standing waves in the cerebral ventricles, which are then conducted to the gray matter in the cerebral cortex on the right side of the brain. As a result, according to Bentov, these waves 
waves will stimulate and eventually polarize the cortex in such a way that it will tend to conduct a signal along the homunculus, starting from the toes and on up. Now, from what I understand, in Transcendental Meditation, you use mantra, correct? That's that is true. Heard. Yeah. So he's saying that the mantra sends vibrations all the way up your spine and then causes the magic juju to happen. And this is a guy talking about it in the 80s. So it's been around for a bit now. McDonald also brings up another interesting technique or process of biofeedback. And he says, Instead of suppressing the left hemisphere as is done in hypnosis or largely bypassing and ignoring it as is done in transcendental meditation, biofeedback teaches the left hemisphere first to visualize the desired result and to then recognize the feelings associated with the experience of successful right hemisphere access to the specific lower cerebral cortex or pain pleasure center or other areas in the manner needed to produce the desired result. Special self-monitoring devices such as the digital thermometer are used to inform the left brain when it succeeds in keying the right hemisphere into accessing the appropriate area. Once this is done, the left brain can then repeatedly instruct the right brain to re-establish the pathways involved so as to produce the same external objective measures of success. So for those of us that speak English, <laughs> this is basically a process in which you are hooked up to some kind of feedback mechanism as in it is monitoring you, but you are also observing the results at the same time. Say you want to achieve a state of focus. So you can actually see the more focused you are, say if you had a brain scan going, you could read the brain waves and see the pattern on the screen of what it looked like when you were relaxed or focused or whatever you want to attain. People have used this to regulate their own body temperature, which is where the thermometer comes in. Yep. You can also regulate your own heart rate. You can control the parasympathetic nervous system by teaching your left brain to respond to the biofeedback signal from the machines. So the more you look at it and the more you focus and feel things out, you can actually teach the conscious brain to control these mechanisms. And apparently you probably also learn how to hold your breath really long using this technique. Like there's a lot of access to basically your subconscious processes in your body yeah. by using that. Your superhuman abilities almost. Like if you needed to take a lie detector test, you could actually like fudge yeah. the test using these techniques. If you knew what you had to do to make the machine pick up the wrong signal, you knew what bodily functions. Normal people don't know how to do that, but like I'm pretty sure CIA agents who are, you know, could be kidnapped, you know, any of these like highly trained military personnel, they're probably immune to these types of things. You basically learn how to lie. You can do anything. You can get out of the normal capabilities that we can do doing but, things like controlling your heart rate your breathing your temperature that is all for survival and it's a, it's a very extreme technique at its top tiers i guess but it must be practiced yeah with equipment it sounds like something you could give to consumers with a smartphone and one of those heartbeat monitoring wristbands you just need to make an app for it i mean you can do this on a really basic level if you feel your own pulse yeah. and focus on slowing your own pulse yeah. like it's just observing the signals your left brain can't process emotion or even that function so it's just observing the patterns of when that happens and how you can slow it down and you can get really high tech with it using all sorts of equipment darth vader mode
Now, having established that these three well-known methods function by finding creative ways of passing signals into the right hemisphere of the brain, either by bypassing or focusing the left hemisphere, the gateway and hemisync method are conceived of as creating a mirror-like harmony between activity of both hemispheres, which, on an EEG, quote, displays both hemispheres are simultaneously equal in amplitude and frequency. Furthermore, in states of expanded consciousness, the right hemisphere of the human brain in its holistic non linear and nonverbal mode of functioning acts as the primary matrix or receptor for this holographic input, while, by operating in phase or coherence with the right brain, the left hemisphere provides the secondary matrix through its binary computer-like method of functioning to screen further the data by comparison and reduce it to a discrete two-dimensional form. We're going to talk about a couple of those words like holographic and a, a couple of the things brought up there. We're going to bring that up later. The operative idea, though, is that you're getting the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere to mirror each other and work together at greater efficiency. Hence the term hemisync through training. One is said to experience, quote, enhanced strength, focus, and coherence to the amplitude and frequency of brainwave output between the left and right hemispheres so as to alter consciousness, moving it outside the physical sphere so as to ultimately escape even the restrictions of time and space. The participant then gains access to the various levels of intuitive knowledge which the universe offers. You think they put any Scientology in the Kool-Aid? I, I think it's possible. Might be. Sounds yeah. cool, though. Some Kool-Aid for sure. <laughs> this explains why at least one incarnation of the secret remote viewing programs the United States operated was named, quote, Center Lane, as, according to this paradigm, the formerly mystical, magical methods of spirit travel, astral projection, and out-of-body experience are said to be accomplished by the creation of a highly focused stream of biological energy that is not defined by activity in either hemisphere of the brain, but by both simultaneously creating a Center Lane, where where consciousness can pick up speed and move freely upon the astral information highway without being slowed down by attractions, pit stops, and the shoulder of either the right or the left lane. Yes, that's what entrainment is. And I can't help but think of the middle pillar, especially the way Israel Regardi puts it in his writing. Yes. It's a well-known ritual experience you can do yourself. Some people say not to do it because it's a little dangerous, but it definitely can put your mental state into interesting modes. Although we are not going to talk about it too much. Famously, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life is said to depict this in symbolic form, the function of the left and the right hemispheres of the brain, and essentially by balancing them, you would gain access to, quote, the middle pillar which is like the pillar of mildness, the happy place you want to go in terms of consciousness. It's the quickest way from the bottom of the tree to the top of the tree. It's no bullshit, but it's hard. It's a straight shot. You can avoid the left and the right pillars, the pillar of mercy and severity, and just travel up the pillar of mildness all the way to the top. That's the operative idea. So now that we've talked about the tree of life and freeways, we're going to mix some more metaphors, although not terribly so. This focused and directed state of mind is also related to a 
laser in contrast to regular consciousness, which is likened to, let's say, a lamp. So McDonald continues, Melissa Yeager points out that the human mind in its natural state may be likened to an ordinary lamp, which expends energy in the form of both heat and light, but in a chaotic, incoherent way, which diffuses its energy over a wide area of rather limited depth. On the other hand, the human mind under the discipline of hemisync acts as the fashion of a laser beam, which produces a disciplined stream of light. The stream of energy is projected with total coherence of both frequency and amplitude, such that the surface area of a laser beam contains billions of times the concentrated energy found in similar surface area on the sun. Gateway assumes that once the frequency and amplitude of the human brain are rendered coherent, it is possible to begin accelerating both so that the human mind is soon resonating at even higher vibrational levels. The mind can then bring itself into synchronization with more sophisticated and rarefied energy levels in the universe. The mind, when operating at these increasingly rarefied levels, is assumed to be capable of processing the information thus received through the same fundamental matrix by which it makes sense of ordinary physical sensory input to achieve meaning in a cognitive context. Such meaning is usually perceived visually in the form of symbols, but may also be perceived as astonishing flashes of holistic intuition, or even in the form of scenarios involving both visual and aural perception. So it's saying you're turning your brain waves into a laser beam that is capable of shooting through dimensions. Yes. <laughs> Which is what the masters worked their entire lives for. Normally our brain is radiating like a lamplight, Melissa Yeager is saying at first, but you can train it to turn that lamplight into like a bat signal or whatever you might want to focus on. Gateway used laser beam. It's super effective. <laughs> and this corresponds with what we know about the esoteric arts. You have a mantra to focus in transcendental meditation. In chaos magic, you use sigils. And then in ceremonial magic, you're hyper-focused on the ritual itself. So in no esoteric school is this not taught in some form or fashion. I believe chaos magic calls it thought-stopping exercises because you want to focus it. Focus it! Which brings us to the question, does it work? According to Wikipedia, replicated double-blind randomized trials on anesthetized patients have found the hemisync method effective as a partial replacement for fentanyl during surgery. A similar oh. study found it ineffective at replacing propofol, diprovan, however. So don't do heroin, kids. Do the meditation. Listen to the binaural beats. It works just as good. And then... Secondly, I thought this was quite interesting. Apparently, the type of headphones matter too. According to a study done in 2002 by the University of Virginia at the Society for Psychophysiological Research, they discovered that using the Monroe Institute headphones, Audio-Technica M30Xs, specifically, we looked it up, binaural beats were said to work quite well. But when replacing the Audio-Technicas with, quote, air conduction headphones, which were connected to a remote transducer by rubber tubes, whatever that is, the Binaural beats did not work at all. I don't know enough about headphones to really comment, but it seems worth mentioning that the type of headphones used in binaural beats matter. The Audio Technicas have rare earth magnets in them, so maybe that's part of it. According to the Monroe Institute's website, they basically state that it has to be high quality electromagnetic headphones. So using something like earbuds, it's not going to work because they're not electromagnetic. They don't have the magnets in them, the rare earth magnets. They're just electrostatic. You gotta have magnets going bah, 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 inside the headphones somewhere. You gotta drop at least 70 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so 
This is how astral projection and spirit travel is explained by the suits in the secret intelligence gathering operation at Fort Meade, which did do plenty of remote viewing and successfully at that. But this brings us to the next question. What is astral projection? According to Jason Louv of Magic.me, who's an amazing, albeit slightly expensive teacher, says that astral projection is often confused with out-of-body experience and that the world you see when you close your eyes, that's the astral dimension. He would say that when you close your eyes and envision your room around you, that would be the equivalent to glimpsing the astral realm. Likewise, much of magic is concerned with controlling one's movement through and inside of the astral realm. This would also mean that focusing on the image of a sigil in one's mind's eye is more or less the same thing as impressing it into the quote astral light as Eliphas Levy might say. When you are drawing a pentagram in the air, imagine it glowing like it's on fire. That glowing fire is actually happening in the astral realm. And I was taught, you know, when you're doing the banishing pentagram, it should be blue flame. And then, of course, as you work your way up to the more complicated rituals, you may imagine the color of the flame corresponding to the element and the associated direction. So some teachers... If you're facing north, would draw a green pentagram, for instance. But this imagining of colors is actually happening in the astral realm. You don't technically need to shoot out of your body to experience the astral realm. It's just there when you close your eyes. Likewise, though, as anyone knows, like daydreaming can take over, intrusive thoughts can take over, and that's basically what the lamp metaphor is about. Your thoughts are scattered, you're shooting the energy all over the place, but if you're really focused on the ritual, then you can get that laser-like focus. And that's part of the reason for having so many weird steps in a ceremony is because the more you focus on the ritual, the more you focus on the mantra, the more ways you have to funnel your consciousness, the greater the result and more laser-like your mind will become at manifesting communication with angels or cursing your enemies or becoming a werewolf or whatever you're doing with your rituals. Or just running your marathon or whatever you're focused on. Damien Eccles did this in the astral world because he was locked up for a long time in prison and if he ever did this like they would beat him like the guards would come and beat him that's what he writes about in his books and i think he even says he does that until he gets out of prison using that knowledge so you're saying he did all his rituals in prison in the astral realm because if he did it physically he would get beaten yes and it worked because he's out now and that's what he was like praying for and protecting himself against was like these demon guards and stuff it's interesting to read his books from that perspective. And likewise, drawing a pentagram in the air is just a more efficient way of drawing one in the astral because it's said that the material world and the astral realm closely mirror each other. So I feel like similar to some of these experiences is the fact that we humans have this experience called lucid dreaming. And I think in regards to some of these paraphysical experiences that we might all share, lucid or maybe even a vivid dream is probably one of the more common ones. You know, a dream that you always remember. I think that definitely counts as like a <laughs> sort of message. Long story short, a lucid dream is a dream in which a person is aware that they're in a dream. This is often considered a higher quality version 
of astral projection. And it's also the ideal place to both perform ceremonial magic and interact with entities. For example, if you're in complete control of your dream and you want to visit the realm of fire, you would maybe envision a red door with an upright red triangle on it, maybe the symbol of Aries, and then you open the door and as you walk through the door, you will arrive in a fiery realm. And then if you're approached by entities, supposedly you can flash the grade sign associated with fire. So in this case, a little Illuminati triangle on your forehead created by your two hands. And then if it is a fire being, they will often salute you with the same fire symbol. But if they're not, if they're an imposter, they may run away or disappear or something like that. And so you get to tap into your occult tools in a more vivid video game like way if you are firmly in the astral, which is what a lucid dream allows you to do. And I like to say it's a safe place to do your magic. Like if you're really focused in these states, it's not real and you know it. So you can do kind of whatever you want to do. You can do that big giant spell you've always were thinking of. You know, you can just travel there and do it in the dream world. And it's not going to hurt anybody if it involves hurting somebody like yourself. I've cut myself many times in my dream, in my astral form, and I'm, my physical body's fine. So you can do that. Yeah. And I almost liken it to like, you know, like a regular dream is like you're on a roller roller coaster you're going for a ride and you're just strapped in think about it if you know when the roller coaster rests at the top of a drop before it drops you what if you could like get out of the uh seat get out of the roller coaster climb all the way down and experience the whole theme park like whatever you want that is kind of what lucid dreaming is and then it also breaks you into the plane of the astral so if you do astral projection it's very similar in feeling because you're in the same place every person does have the ability to lucid dream but the levels of ability seem to vary per person and actually, if you train yourself, you can get really good at it. If you, but you got to practice. Some people find it easy to lucid dream at all times. Like they just, every time they dream, they can do whatever they want and they have full control. And for others, it's an ability that comes and goes throughout a dream. And there are still some people that seem to just not naturally be able to do that. It took me a long time to have dream lucidity. And most of my earlier experiences, once I realized I was dreaming, I would just instantly wake up. I've never been very good at it. I think I've always, uh, for as long as I can remember, been able to lucid dream, but not all of my lucid dreams am I able to control the environment. Some of them I'm only able to control my own actions. Like there's different degrees of lucid dreams that I can have yeah. and at the I guess potent level of lucid dreaming you get to the point where you don't just control your own actions you can control every single aspect of it so you can control what realm you're in what your environment is what your environment is doing and what you are doing it's also dependent on your physical state of mind if you're worried if you're tired if your physical body's exhausted that there's various biological things that factor into dreaming so if you want to improve your own ability to take control of and enjoy your dreams, you can start with some basic habit building to determine whether you are dreaming or not. Aside from dream journaling, you should practice one or all of these habits every day when awake. So when you go to sleep and you're dreaming, you can tell the difference between waking and dreaming. One of the most famous sayings is one of the practices you can try. Pinch me, I'm dreaming. Everybody's heard that when someone's excited, they'll say that, but literally pinch yourself in your dream. If it doesn't hurt, you're dreaming. Another technique similar is plugging your nose and mouth and holding your breath. Uh, in a dream, you will never need to unplug your nose. You don't need to breathe when you're dreaming because you're already dead asleep and you're still breathing. My favorite test is 
you like look at a clock, try to read a clock or uh, open a book or look at a poster and try to read it and then look away for a second and look back and see if anything's changed. Um, A lot of the times when you're looking at uh, words or symbols in a dream, it'll wobble, change and change continuously as you're looking at it. And a lot of times it's illegible markings like scrawlings you can't read. Uh, You can also look at your hands and your feet as a reference point and they will often look distorted when you're dreaming. Before falling asleep, apparently you can repeat a mantra or a phrase like, I will be aware that I'm dreaming or something like that, which can help retain the memory for later recall when you do realize that you're dreaming or it might snap you into that. Um, All of these need to be used together, obviously, to get really good at honing your skills for lucid dreaming. But one of the most important things is you should be dream journaling if you take this seriously to take note of patterns and recurring symbols or objects in your dream. Recognizing them will help gain lucidity the more you get familiar with them, like it'll cause a trigger and then you can stop and start doing your checks and making sure where you are and then you should be able to take control after that. I think even for people who can lucid dream, having a dream journal can help them take it to the next level. Yeah, because once you get really good at it, it'll start to feel similar and may actually be astral projection. Have you ever heard of somebody like two close friends or family members uh, having a shared dream where they describe exactly the same scenario to each other and they probably might have met in the dream? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, that's that's a form of entanglement. And twins do it a lot too, apparently. Many people report being able to meet up with another person while in the state, which is also the case with astral projection. Some people can even go into the state while fully awake and aware without the need of REM sleep. So you don't even have to go to sleep. The more you train yourself to be used to that feeling, the more likely you're able to actually astral project yourself, which is really cool. It's like a built-in tutorial. It's neat because you can do this with meditation as well, like it was said earlier, and kind of push yourself into an astral projection experience. It's another helpful way to get there because you got to calm yourself down and pull away from your body before it happens. This brings us to the next extreme incarnation of astral travel, the OBE or out of body experience. I don't know any other way to say this. Out of body experience for what those words mean uh, as a singular word put together into like a combination of words. It's almost like every subject we've talked about so far on the show. But I think the definition of an out of body experience might vary with depending on who you're talking to. Now, well, I think it's fair to define everything we've discussed today as quote out of body experiences. I tend to reserve this category for experiences where the body has become more or less inaccessible. Oftentimes it's involuntary and corresponds with intense trauma, near death, or even during anesthesia. I think in most cases of astral travel, including lucid dreaming, you'd be able to respond to somebody pricking the bottom of your foot with a needle. But while during OBE, you might not feel the sharp needle. And you might even enter into an OBE because somebody is poking your foot too painfully with a needle and you're not able to handle it. And so you just fly out of your body where it's safe. But we'll get to some of this in the extended version and decode what all that stuff might mean from an ancient Egyptian perspective of the yeah, for me, uh, the out-of-body experience, technically when you're talking about medical texts, it's a dissociative state where the patient reports some kind of floating feeling outside of the body or consciousness leaving the skull and visually seeing your own discarded body left behind. Anyone who has had a near-death experience, which we're going to talk about next, a lot of them have had out-of-body experiences before they experience the near-death experience. So this is like a prelimination, like when your consciousness leaves your body and then it is taken into the astral 
natural on this wild trip you apparently see before death. You mean they experience the NDE in tandem as an OBE? NDEs can contain, the out-of-body is like the first precursor that people report. Not everyone, some people go straight into like life review or seeing Jesus or whatever. <laughs> but we're, we'll talk about it. But you can have an out-of-body experience just from, you know, physical or mental trauma from staying up too much, like chronic insomnia. Sometimes I know a lot of you guys have said that you wake up with sleep paralysis. That's when you wake up suddenly in REM sleep and you're still paralyzed. Some people report they basically get thwapped out of their body when they wake up in sleep paralysis. It can happen when you're daydreaming as a natural ability or through tools like drugs and sensory deprivation, even dehydration. Like there's a lot of things that can cause it that is medical. But usually in those instances, you just leave your body, you kind of hang out, float around the room or maybe around the building and then you come back in. Yeah, the document definitely recognizes the possibility of a out-of-body experience. And I've had these two, but it was all in accordance with trauma. So I was not hallucinating. I wasn't in the astral. I wasn't doing any of that other stuff. This is just strictly like, hi, I'm floating in the room like a ghost. Yeah, through the gateway process, I meant to say too, is like you can trigger an out-of-body experience. Supposedly, that's how it all got started. He was listening to sleep tapes that then got bapped out of his body. Bap, bap. And then the most extreme edition of astral travel, the NDE. Yeah, the near-death experience. It's a psychological event that many people report after recovering from a life-threatening traumatic experience. Usually the person appears unconscious to those around them at the time, but they seem to report having a hyper-realistic experience within their own consciousness, even as their body lays shut down and damaged. Or even clinically dead. Oh yes, it's been shown with brain scans, EEGs and such, that the brain stays alive for at least 30 seconds after your heart stops. You know, when you're in this state, when you're in the state of the astral, time and space don't have any more meaning. So it could seem like, you know, years that you were having a, an NDE. I also wouldn't say that consciousness is even in our body or our brain or any particular part. It's somewhere else. Yes, we're just simply the antenna that tune it in. Yeah, exactly. But the near-death experience can vary per individual, but all the anecdotal evidence shows certain patterns and similarity despite culture, religion, or age. Some examples of common threads between all these reports are a shift or expansion of consciousness outside the body, like the OBE, like hovering over one's unconscious body, flying out of the body and away into space, or a feeling of euphoria and being in a comforting place where they're visiting with other dead friends and family. Often there's a description of a tunnel with a light at the end and moving towards it. There's usually a life review. The quote is, oh, I saw my life flash before my eyes. That's pretty much talking about your life review. And it basically goes through every point of your life, everyone you've talked to, touched, everyone you've affected. It seems like a really long time has transpired, but usually these episodes only happen within like minutes or even seconds in real life. Again, some people will see or meet with religious figures. Some cultures don't really deal with tunnels a lot, so they'll see a river or perhaps a cave with a light at the end instead of the tunnel. It's just really interesting how every single culture, every human being on the planet has reported very similar instances when this happens to them. And there's even old folk tales of deathbed visions of like people would see things right before they died and, and try to tell everyone around them, but it would be too late. And that could also be part of the same bigger phenomena of astral travel. The interesting part about some of these near-death experiences, despite lack of measured scientific evidence, they're extremely detailed and described by those affected as realer than real. People who have an NDE can often recall surroundings, actions, and conversations between people scrambling over them while their bodies lay there completely unconscious. 
or even under anesthesia. And most of the time, their anecdotes have been corroborated with the people around them during the event. This has happened to me. You want to tell your story? I'll tell it on the next episode. Because I have a lot, because I used to think that this was kind of like, oh, well, it's just a brain firing off before it dies. It's just a hallucination, but it's not. It happens even if you're not dying. Yeah. Yeah. And there really isn't much, like we were talking about, it's a lot of stories. I mean, it's anecdotal, the evidence that we've had on NDEs for such a long time because we haven't had the technology or means to study it up until like maybe like 50 years ago. And, you know, now our technology is even better. So there are a few newer studies that have come out, but they all seem to average around 10 to 20% of cardiac arrest survivors reported an NDE after being revived. And it's a, it's a good deal of people, but this is, now think about it, this is only people People that have gone flatline and were revived with like clear, like what are those things called? The, the paddles. Defibrilla- the defibrillator. Yeah. So they have to have had their heart stopped to be studied in this study. But think about people that say were in a car crash and they stayed coherent. They didn't pass out or anything, or maybe they did pass out, but like people that have been under any trauma, it could be anything, not just cardiac arrest. It's just that seems to be the most efficient and ethical way to study this. But you can't just have everyone wearing monitors constantly just in case they almost get hit by a car that day and have an NDE. We can't do it yet. But one day. One day. That's what nano machines are for, son. <laughs> I did find this one case of a medical article su- submitted by a doctor that had a patient die during a brain surgery. So, of course, if you're doing brain surgery, you have them hooked up to the EEG. So you're watching their brain activity. So uh, during the surgery, all of the stats started to tank and they like his heart rate was going. He was about to go out, you know, blood pressure, all that was just going off. So they knew he was going to die. But the EEG was recording and it was interesting that the doctor noted that he watched the entire organ system shut down. He watched the brain shut down one at a time, the heart stop. And even after the shutdown of the body at the time of death, the brain lit up in this specific way. And it looked extremely similar to like high intense focus, transcendental meditation, dreaming, sensory deprivation, even recordings of brains experiencing ketamine and DMT. I mean, the way this brain lit up when it was going out was related to all the other topics that we discussed beforehand. So the NDE is part of that family, but is usually associated with death and trauma. It makes sense why people who suddenly end up taking ketamine or DMT can have the subjective experience of thinking they died. And there is some evidence and theories about how the pineal gland secretes DMT into your cerebral spinal fluid before you die. So there's a lot of stuff yet to be found about this phenomenon, and it's unfortunate we can't really study it that well. Like, you can't just have sensors on people waiting for them to die. And think about it, people that actually die can't come back and report the evidence. So think about how much evidence evidence we're missing on it. I mean, that's what the typical scientific model and spirituality states. I guess this gateway thing is saying the rules aren't as such when you do this certain thing with your mind. Like maybe you can talk to dead people. It's pretty out there. Oh, really crazy one. Somebody had an NDE. They were going towards the light or whatever, and they saw somebody they knew. They stopped and had a conversation, and they didn't, this person wasn't dead. It was like one of their friends. And then come to find out when they came back, that person was passing away at the same time that that person had their NDE. Oh. So they, they they met in the in the experience. Like you can meet people that are currently passing away. 
that you know. Like, if that's real, that's got to make some sense at some scientific, at, at some level. It's just right? mind-blowing, because once you hear stuff like that, and it's not just one person, it's like multiple people have reported this, like, separately. No, yeah, yeah it's, it's it's legendary. This is a legendary ability of myth. You know, even prophetic dreams, prophetic visions while you're alive, or near-death experiences have, and, and they come back revitalized with a new mission to rule, or to, oh, yeah. you know, like, this is a legend legend almost but if that experience is real it's got to be measurable in a way and that would require in science a unified theory and one of the more famous unified theories is the theory of quantum mechanics it's not even unified though they're close they're, they're not there yet though it's a theory it's trying to explain everything that's what unified theory means and quantum mechanics is one of the theories that they're trying to find an ultimate answer to everything they can't uh, quite get gravity to fit though they're they're trying no. yeah but so, it is part of the quote standard model that mainstream science admits to and then the question is how do we apply our understanding of quantum mechanics to some of this stuff about consciousness? Is there some way to maybe explain how this stuff works using the quantum level? Quantum mechanics came out in the early 1900s. Some of these concepts, they've been around for a while and they've been looked at. And as technology has evolved, they've been able to observe some of these things. And it's similar to Eastern and Western magical wisdom traditions in many ways and i guess that's what we're trying to do with this episode is bring it to that level but we got to talk about you know quantum mechanics a little bit you're a little bit familiar with some of these concepts of brain waves like reaching certain frequencies and such you might get why i'm bringing up quantum mechanics and if not we're gonna try to summarize some of the more important parts as briefly as possible and to be fair Nobody really understands what quantum mechanics is about. It's almost a famous phrase that if you think you know everything about quantum mechanics, you definitely don't. And I don't either. But here's some information. It does allow us to conceptualize things differently than how we do at the large scale. And it's useful for helping us understand some of these subtle chemical interactions in the brain and how they may influence our consciousness. So this theory, quantum mechanics, it implies that the that at the foundation of reality, it's not all material, but rather based on these energy waves or these wave functions. In these waves, particles can communicate instantly. All right, that sounds a bit absurd, right? So here's some explanation. So when it comes to observing subatomic particles in those high powered microscopes and we go down to these quantum levels we see that matter is just energy right that energy is constantly moving and can be calculated in a two-dimensional graph this is a wave function and in mathematics once you know the function you could then plot out all the possible points that can be graphed from its lowest to its highest value you know you can even throw an infinity number in there and it gets complicated but wave functions will go up and down changing at certain peaks and at certain lows they'll come up and down right this goes on constantly and from this data, it can be said that after a few parts of the function are revealed, the whole future and past points can be plotted out with great accuracy. Given that everything in the material world is made up of the tiny waves of energy, we can tap into this data using our minds to send it on a highway to see events in the past, present, or future. At least that's what this document is claiming. Whoa. Now, if that's true, then that's saying that we live in a non-local reality. That's because when we are talking about stuff this small, the rules start to break, like I said. Like, for instance, you mentioned quantum entanglement, and it's the idea that two particles tend to 
be affected by the same phenomena, even when they're unable to communicate. They are entangled and mimic each other at a speed that surpasses light. So okay. if you have one particle moving over here, it'll move the other particle over here without them seemingly to communicate. Basically breaking space-time. Yes. If you know that two atoms are entangled and one of their oscillation rates will be one way or the other. The second you look at one of them and get that data, you immediately know the other one somehow. Schrodinger's box thing with the cat, like is it dead or alive? You don't know until you open it. So information transferring is instantaneous. This breaks the laws of our local reality. So what's a non-local and what's a local reality? And this is something that quantum mechanics is running into as a problem because it seems like we live in a local reality. And this, this is one of the problems that it's trying to figure out. It, it was like we were looking at smaller and smaller things and then it just threw a bigger riddle at us like no we're not in a local reality a local reality is like our own it means that you have to travel a distance to get anywhere in physical space time it takes a certain amount of space to be crossed which takes time you cannot break this that's what it seems like but the notion that we can send our minds forward and back through time instantaneously or the fact that information can be transferred instantaneously across any distance that's a direct contradiction to our local reality experience we know we cannot just tell teleport anywhere at all so freely. You got to drive to work, walk to the toilet. Everything sucks, but quantum mechanics says it's possible, so what the fuck is this deal? The point here is that these distances are merely measurements within a singular entity. So when you get so small, it becomes just like a singular entity, and anything you could even like measure in there is doesn't matter. That's what this means. It's more like a brain or a mind because it can travel at the speed of thought breaks the rules. So the goal is to kind of become one with the universe. Now, this is my interpretation to become a singular quantum level entity with this dimension and the others to travel between them. You know, you got to tune yourself to what level of where you want to go. And if you want to go and hear the rest of this episode where we go in depth about the anatomy of the soul from the perspective of ancient Egyptian wisdom, then please visit www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit where your monthly donation of just five bucks will not only get you the extended edition of this episode, but all our episodes going back over the years to the before time. And not only that, I'll send you a five by five vinyl sticker of our big bunny cover art and you'll get instantaneous access to our highly secret lab of scientists and other listeners and collaborators on the show where you can talk about shifting quantum entangled realities into states of mind stuff thank you everybody eat carrots and shoot lasers pew 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 <laughs>